Hey guys, welcome to Gospel Church Online this week. Uh, John, Pastor John, whatever you want to call me here again. Uh, and here to bring you the word uh, in our series, Luke the Limitless Gospel. We're looking at Luke's gospel again. We're in chapter 8 today, starting at verse 22. If you want to whip that open, feel free to do so. If you have one of our Luke scripture journals, uh, it's on page 64 of that. Uh, but uh, before we get into this, I'm going I'm to pray for us uh, and then we'll, we'll step into looking at God's word. Jesus, uh, we ask you, and I ask that this would be uh, your work in each one of us, that you would reveal the glory of God to us today. We know, Jesus, that you came to the world to show us who God is and not just to show uh, in a demonstrative way, but to show in a saving way rescue us so Lord we ask that we would see you that we would see our God more clearly today and in the seeing of you that we would be transformed that in seeing your glory we would come to be more like you we pray this in Jesus name amen well we're actually approaching um, kind of two slabs of, of Luke's gospel today that are in chapter 8 uh, first we have the uh, the calming of the storm and then we have Jesus casting out the demons from the possessed man. Uh, and, and it would be really easy to come to this today and to kind of not see a direct connection between these two things. Uh, to not see what's there. But, but actually there is one. And we see it when we see this in the context of the themes that have been coming out in Luke's Gospel thus far. In chapter 6, way back in chapter 6, two chapters ago, it's not that long ago, uh, Jesus spoke to a crowd in his great Sermon on the Plain. And when he, we read that, we saw that the central idea of the Sermon on the Plain was captured in those words of Jesus, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and likewise the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. And so we saw there these two things. One, that what we treasure in our hearts will lead to what we do with our hands. And two, that in order to be uh, living the life of a follower of Jesus, our greatest need is a change of heart. Or more specifically, a change of the treasure of our hearts. We need a new heart that treasures something better. And so this theme of the treasure of the heart uh, producing the action of the hands begins to crop up. And in fact, it goes back even further than the Sermon on the Plain, but we begin to see it pretty clearly from here on in. Um, a, a couple of weeks back, we were in Luke chapter 7. We looked at Jesus in the house of Simon the Pharisee. Right? And in, in the house of Simon the Pharisee, we had that episode where the sinful woman comes in and weeps on his feet. And, and Jesus says, she uh, has been forgiven much because she loved much. And to say that her love reveals the forgiveness that is in her. But we see that again, don't we? The, the idea, the treasure of her heart is what leads to the action that she's doing. And, and we saw the flip side of that as well in Simon who treasured his own reputation and therefore his action he produced was to use people. And, and then uh, last week we looked at the, the parable of the sower uh, and, and we saw the four types of, of soil and we can actually see this theme of the treasure of the heart and the work of the hands coming out in all of them. But uh, <clears throat> for the sake of brevity, uh, we'll just say that 
the good soil, the, the last of those soils, the good person, uh, holds fast, is what Jesus said, holds fast the words of Jesus in a good and honest heart. Now, do you see that there? And, and, and so produces fruit, good fruit. Do you see the direct line there between the heart and the fruit, the heart and the hands? Now, you might hear me talking about this theme and you might be feeling a bit gypped by now and thinking, well, hang on, John, you've told us again and again and again and again that the theme in this section of the book of Luke is the big question. Who is this man? Who is this Jesus? And, uh, and, and you might be thinking, well, hang on, you can't, you, can't, you can't do the old change of rule on us now, right? And you'd be right, actually, that that is the theme of this section. But, but here's the thing. As we encounter the identity and the authority of Jesus, and that, that's what we've been happening. We've been seeing Jesus' identity and authority. His authority challenges us to ask, who is this man? What is his identity? As we see his identity and authority, he challenges the treasures of our hearts and calls us to treasure him above all. You see, the passage of scripture we're coming to today would be easy to read as just these two disconnected sections, two unrelated stories, the coming of the storm, releasing of the demon-possessed man, uh, just two remarkable things that Jesus did, right, in, in a very remarkable ministry. But what joins them is this theme of the treasure of our hearts producing the action of our hands and in fact we're going to see that expanded on here we're going to see that built on we're going to see some practical implications of what that means panned out but broadly these two passages they bring us that one reality that speaks very personally to every one of us the identity and authority of Jesus challenge the treasures of my heart, of our hearts, and call us to treasure him above all. So let's look at this now. And it's amazing, actually, isn't it? Um, so, so if we note this, the, the ministry of Jesus has been just continuously an up-ramp. Uh, it's just been getting more and more crazy, more and more amazing things happening. And we might have been wondering, you know, how long can this last? Is it going to keep getting more amazing? And it just keeps doing it. And today is a wonderful example of they're just stepping up another notch. There is a, a really vital lesson we need to learn today from, from the calming of the storm. And, and to get to it, we're just going to try and walk through uh, this story, these events, and see the enormity of what happens and try to grasp what the disciples might have felt in this situation. So imagine it, if you will. Uh, up to the start of verse 23, we have nothing to indicate that the weather was anything but perfectly peaceful. Jesus, Jesus along with his disciples, probably the 12, we could imagine, uh, they get into a boat and they set out to sail across the lake. You know, it's you and Jesus. What could go wrong? What could possibly go wrong? Even without him, really, right? Because, because a number of these disciples of Jesus, remember where they started out? They were fishermen. They were experienced fishermen, experienced in fishing this very lake. And so, you know, what could happen? Really, they've spent their whole lives fishing this spot. What could go wrong? And after all, you know, this lake that they're on, uh, the, the, it's the Sea of Galilee, it's actually a lake, it's 13 kilometres wide at the wide bit. 
you know, it's across the middle. Down near, down near the, the country of the Gerasenes, Gergesenes, or whatever you want to call them, uh, it's more like five kilometres wide. You know, it's not a long way. They can probably see the other side as they set out. Anyway, the sense of security that they probably started with is just reinforced when they, you know, you look back and you see uh, Jesus has fallen asleep in the back of the boat. This is going to be a cruisy little ride here. But suddenly, everything changes. A storm the likes of which they have never seen before is suddenly upon them, and it's so intense that it forces experienced fishermen to conclude, we are going to die. It's that serious. The, the little fishing boat climbs up each towering wave. Have you ever... Um, little side note, one of my favourite genres of book is seafaring non-fiction, if you're ever looking for a Christmas present for me. But uh, there's this book called Desperate Voyage. It's been years since I read it, and I couldn't find a copy of it for this week. But uh, in one of the chapters, he describes his experience, this guy who, who, who tried to sail across the world, essentially. He tried to sail from Panama to Australia to get to his wife after one of the world wars. And um, he had no experience in sailing. But in one of the chapters, he describes uh, sailing through a hurricane. Uh, he goes through a, a, a hurricane. And, and the, wa the walls of water that are the waves... That his little boat gets just carried up, 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 and down, 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 down. And everything threatens to kill you. And in the end, he ends up strapping himself to his bed. And just deciding, you know, this is the safest place to be. What happens, happens. And so imagine this sort of similar situation. There's little fishing boats, smaller than the one that John Caldwell, who wrote that book, would have been in. It climbs up every towering wave and then crashes back down, gets thrown back down the other side. Every time the water crashes over, crashes over them, the boat threatens to break up, threatens to splinter or to overturn. Every time it fills up another several inches and every time a wave hits, that wave threatens to pull you overboard with the force of the water. Put yourself in their shoes, right? You are clinging to this boat for dear life. And in between waves, you know, when there's a gap, you let go and you grab anything nearby and you're trying to get water out of this boat. You're just trying to bucket it out. You may not, maybe you don't have a bucket. Maybe you use your hat. Maybe you use your hands. Whatever you have, really, to get the water out. And in this state of blind panic, you turn around to the stern, that's, that's the back, and, and, and there's Jesus. <laughs> Your charismatic leader. And what's Jesus doing? He's still asleep. In desperation, you throw yourself back on him. And you yell over the wind, Master, Master, we are dying. And, and he wakes up and Luke tells us that he rebuked the storm. Mark's gospel actually gives us the words he said. It says, um, uh, peace, be still. Actually, in Greek, it's just these two words that he says, that they get translated as those three. And the tense there, it tells us 
that in the Greek of what happened next is that it stopped immediately. Imagine that. Imagine, you know, you're still lying half on top of Jesus, shaking him when he's muttered these words, peace, be still. And rain that was moving horizontally for the wind just drops to the water. Sails that had been beating suddenly just go limp. Walls of water, waves that towered above you and terrified you suddenly just become glass. It's so still that you can hear the dripping water, the drip, drip, drip from the side of the boat into this glassy lake. Imagine it. And and in this context, Jesus turns to them and he says, where was your faith? Didn't you believe? Don't you believe that I'm bigger than this storm? Don't, Don't you know who I am? And the disciples end by asking the big question that we've seen so many times. Who is this guy? Who is he that even the wind and the waves obey his voice? And it's, it's an understandable question to ask, really. Uh, I mean, even just generally. But, but we might get so familiar with the head knowledge that Jesus is God that, that it just seems kind of uh, unremarkable to us. But, but there is no way that it could have been to them. These, these Jewish men, they would have known their Old Testament a bit and they would have been familiar with the words of Psalm 104 that says this about God. At your rebuke, the waters fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took flight. Or, or Psalm 89, to pick two out of a very large pool of scriptures, by the way. Psalm 89, you rule the raging of the sea when its waves rise You still them. Imagine the storm in their hearts at the moment. Jesus stills the storm and the waves. What does that make him? You know, you're sitting in a boat with this guy and you're beginning to think thoughts that are outrageous, that are beyond what you could have imagined to be true about who he might be. And it seems they're so dumbstruck by the implications that they can't bring themselves to answer the question. You know that feeling, don't you, when, when, when everyone knows the answer, but it's so outrageous that no one wants to be the first one to say it? Really, the big thing that I think is flowing through their heads now is, who is this that, that creation obeys his voice? Like, really? Uh, that's, that's what the disciples are going through here. Because, because who has the power to command creation with their voice? This is a no-brain question for them. Who made creation with their voice? In their hearts, they begin to finally see who Jesus is in a much bigger way than they have previously. Although it doesn't become explicit yet. Right? And can you see that although they're, they're shaken by what happened, actually this, this experience has grown their faith. It's really important that we see that. 
the important biblical principle working out here that we need to see because it's true for our lives as well is that struggle and storm are the place where God exposes our unbelief and grows our faith. Struggle and storm are the places where God exposes our unbelief and grows up our faith. Here's another way of putting that. Struggle and storm are the place where God reveals the treasure of our hearts, the false treasures of our hearts, and grows us into treasuring him more. 1 Peter 1, 6-7 tells us that trials test our faith like fire tests gold. They refine our faith and lead us to be more centred on Jesus. They lead us to trust in him more and more in, in, and, and in other things less and less. You see, when the disciples went out on the lake, uh, they, they appeared to have faith in Jesus, to be filled with faith in Jesus, right? They appeared to be people who loved Jesus and were committed followers of Jesus. But halfway across the lake, it didn't seem so certain, did it? The pressure of the storm halfway across the lake reveals the deficiencies of their faith. The same is true for us. We might be trundling along in life comfortably, you know, the whole world convinced and us with them that we are committed followers of Jesus, believers in Jesus, people of a sturdy faith. Hey man, you're a follower of Jesus? Yeah, I believe in Jesus. But, but when faith, we face struggles, when we face challenges, sicknesses, losses of jobs or loved ones or property or whatever, when you face a very physical struggle, maybe like the disciples did here, when you face financial hardships, whatever it is, when the storms come, then you are laid bare. Then the treasure of your heart comes out in what you lean on, in what you turn to in that time, or what you can't stand the loss of, perhaps. And then it becomes apparent the extent to which you've trusted in Jesus. There's a band that I, I love. They're called Beautiful Eulogy. Um, but they've got this wonderful line that captures this really well. Uh, they say, what's concealed in the heart of having is revealed in the losing of things. What's concealed in the heart of having is revealed in the losing of things. When your heart has everything it could want, there's no reason for your treasures to be on display. For the things, when the things that you love in this world are not challenged, then there's no reason to love Christ more and there's no reason to uh, show any concern. You can say, yeah, I follow Jesus, but really you can be relying on the things that you treasure in your heart. That aren't him. But in the losing of those things, those treasures are revealed, and that's the moment where God works on us. We're like we're like toothpaste tubes, really. And everything looks good when nothing's happening, but when the pressure's on, then we see what's on the inside. But you don't just find out because like like uh, like he was with the disciples, Jesus has promised to be with us to the end of the age. So when we face challenges, it's not that he's taunting us by tearing away things that we've loved. It's not that he is trying to destroy us. He's working for our good to build our faith in him. 
to show us that the things we've treasured and trusted are fleeting. <coughs> They're empty compared to the sturdiness and the worth of having him. Because in prosperity, we can state and state trust in Jesus. But when we lose what is dear to us and discover in that situation that he truly is trustworthy and he truly is good, that, that he is caring for me in that situation, then we can say, live or die, he is enough. And our faith has been grown, do you see? Struggle and storm are the place where God shows our unbelief and grows our faith. They are the instruments of his faith-building mercy in our lives. Now imagine how we would live if that was our approach to struggles, to challenges, to difficulties. I don't think we'd avoid them like the plague like we do sometimes. And now Luke moves on to this second part of our passage. And, and once again, we're struck with the authority of Jesus. Uh, but having watched the disciples react to Jesus and grow in their faith, we're now exposed to three ways to respond to Jesus. They land in the country of the Gerasenes, where exactly is being spoken of here is up for a little bit of debate. But what we can say at least is that they land in Gentile country. And again, we get that foreshadowing of the fact that Jesus didn't just come for the Jews. He, he comes to save the Gentiles, uh, and which is going to come out powerfully and beautifully in the book of Acts in a much more complete way. But as they step onto land, they're met with a vicious sight. Give me two seconds. Really, this is like something out of a horror film that we see here, isn't it? I haven't watched many of them, but this is how I imagine it. Uh, they step out of the boat into a graveyard. <laughs> Good start. And they're met by the sound of, of scampering feet. And of hands with clinking chains on them. And this wild-eyed man, dressed in the broken remains of chains that couldn't hold him down, and nothing else, rushes up to them. You know, <laughs> rushes in from the tombs, screaming as he comes. It feels like a confrontation is about to take place, right? When we picture this. Good and evil are about to clash in a serious way. The Bible tells us that the greatest powers of evil in the world aren't men, they're not governments, but are spiritual powers like the ones that possess this man. In fact, the spiritual evil inside of him would have been particularly intense, even for a demon possession. When Jesus asks the demons their name, they say, Legion, for we are many. Legion there is the same word that the Roman army used at the time for a troop of about 7,000 men. Something like 6,200 foot soldiers and maybe 700 horsemen. And now we, we get our first of the three responses to Jesus. And this one is from the powers of darkness themselves. The great powers of evil in this world. And what do they do? They beg. <laughs> 
Do you see that there? They begged. Thousands of demons able to, to literally break chains and to drive this man at their will and get him to do whatever they want. They fall down before Jesus and they beg for mercy. Listen to their words. They're desperate. What have you to do with me, Jesus of Jesus, son of the most high God, I beg you, do not torment me. Down in verse 31, they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. They beg. And actually, the root of the demon's reaction is in that sentence that we read just before. You see, when demonic forces are unfortunate enough to run into the saviour of the world, Jesus, uh, in the Bible, they have, universally, they have a realistic view of him. They know who he is. Like these demons, they call him son of the most high God. They know who they're running into. They know they don't stand a chance. They know how this works. And you see, sometimes we might get fooled, Christians. This is important for us to know, and, and, and there's a lot of people who don't. Sometimes we might get fooled into believing that there is an undecided cosmic match going on. Equally matched cosmic struggle between good and evil. But whilst there is a war, and whilst you and I are on our own, are no match for the powers of evil... We need to see that Jesus is the creator God. And nothing stands against him. Nothing ever will. No power can come close to matching him. A lot of Christians get tricked into going searching for evil. For the terrible powers that are in this world and that are working for, for destruction. Looking for conspiracy. Looking for the hidden powers of this world. For a terrible lie conceived to thwart the powers of good. An idea that Hollywood done nothing to help us with, by the way. But this moment is such a comforting rebuke to that Christian. A comforting rebuke. Here we see the relationship of, of Jesus and demon, good and evil, in full view. And there isn't a fight. It's not a struggle that God eventually wins. The horde of demons have but one move when faced with the Son of Heaven. They beg. <laughs> they beg for mercy. We stand in the time between Jesus' first and second coming here today, Gospel Church. And he is reigning over all of creation. And he is walking with his people. And he's promised to be with us till the end of the age. The greatest power of evil, the devil, is chained and awaiting destruction. If you've trusted in Jesus, there is no power of evil for you to fear. And I would call you in Jesus' name to stop obsessing over evil and start focusing on the work 
of the gospel of Jesus Christ that God has put before you very plainly in the scriptures. Because we are called to combat evil in this world. We are called to combat it, but we don't do that by finding conspiracies or by exposing evil plots. We do that by spreading the gospel and seeing the kingdom grow. Seeing God's reign move across the earth as people believe. So now, now let's, let's continue on uh, with the story. Legion begs Jesus not to send him to the abyss. Now that's probably foreshadowing this whole idea of the eternal death that Satan, death, the demons, and all who have not believed in Jesus will face, that, that we see in Revelation 20 and 21. It's called the lake of fire. And Jesus, he does actually show a measure of compassion here, to even to these demons, and he casts them into a local pig herd, uh, <coughs> which promptly runs down a hill into a lake. Uh, uh, the pig herd, by the way, is one of the reasons why we know that this is a Gentile uh, area, because pig herding, not a big industry in the Jewish world. Uh, but the herdsmen, they run and tell everyone in the city and the country alike uh, what's happened. I mean, their pigs literally just got demon-possessed, threw themselves into the, into the lake and drowned. You know, if that's me, I'm going to tell someone as well, you know? But now our second group come out to respond to Jesus. The people of this region come out, and it's interesting, they beg too. But their begging is different to the, to the demons. They come out and they find the demon-possessed man who their own chains couldn't hold down. The last time they saw him, he was rushing naked into a graveyard in the desert, foaming at the mouth with their own broken chains around his wrists. And there he is now, sitting in his right mind, peacefully at the feet of Jesus. And they are terrified. What kind of power could do this? And much like the disciples, when they see the power of Jesus, they're scared. But unlike the disciples, their response is to beg Jesus to leave. They are confronted with the releasing, redeeming power of God. And you know, I, I think something happens there that still happens today. They see the wonder of who Jesus is, but they see how much this challenges them and their treasure. You see, to embrace the Redeemer means to leave everything behind for him. To be ready to let it all go. We'll see that more and more in the coming chapters of Luke. In stories like the story of Zacchaeus and the rich young ruler. And it, it's a reality of the Christian life. To follow Jesus is to find true treasure. But that, uh, that means that you will lose all other treasures in favour of keeping him. And so for many people that's a cost that they just won't pay. In fact, none of us would pay it naturally. And so Jesus, the mighty redeeming saviour, Jesus, he isn't welcome and he's begged to leave. Because in the end, so many people want to hold on to the life they have rather than see Jesus for who he is and to have the life that is in him. 
not realizing that they are cheaply abandoning eternity in favor of a life that the Bible describes as being in comparison like a breath. Here one moment, gone the next. I wonder, have you been pushing Jesus away? Have you refused to receive him? Refused to throw everything else aside for him? Refused to turn from your sin and to embrace the saviour of the world? There's nothing better that could come of your life than to trust in Jesus. Are you pushing him away? Luke tells us that Jesus gets in the boat and leaves when these people beg him to leave. Your life is like this moment. Painted out across a lifetime. If you persist in not believing, then you are telling Jesus to leave. And in the end, he will give you what you want. What you demand with your life. He will leave you where you are. And nothing could be worse. None of us knows when the time comes that our time is up. That this life is over. And your chance to respond to Jesus is over at that point. Believe now, before it's too late. And that brings us to the, to the final response to Jesus. I love this. The possessed man. Or should I say the, the until recently possessed, possessed man. The released man. He sits at the feet of Jesus and he too, the third one, he begs. Luke tells us that he begged that he might be with Jesus. He wanted to go where Jesus went. He wanted to go with him, wanted to spend his life with the man who saved his life, who redeemed him. But it's interesting, isn't it? Jesus turns to him and he says, no. He says, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. Guys, this is the call of the Christian life playing out here. In Jesus, God has been so good to us. He has been so kind, so merciful, so much better than we could have ever deserved, hoped for, or even dreamed, right? And so we long to be with Jesus, but we are sent to declare his goodness to the world for the time. Paul says that that if he has given the choice, if he was given the choice, life or death, it was a hard choice. Because to live is Christ, but to die is gain. That is to say, to live is to see the name of Christ made big and for people to come to believe in Jesus and for the kingdom of God to spread. But to die is to go to be with him. Which is better? 
Christians, this is the life we are called to. It's a good life, isn't it? Embracing the joy of telling the world about how good God has been to us. Even if it involves the loss of all other treasures that we have embraced, that we might have had, and looking forward to the sweetness of forever with our God, with our Saviour. So let me ask you, how do you respond to Jesus? How are you being called to respond to Jesus today? You know, maybe you have been pushing him away. Maybe you've been telling him to leave, asking, begging him to leave. Be merciful to me in leaving me alone. Oh, he's being merciful to you in staying with you. In calling you to trust in him. Jesus is calling you to believe today. To respond in faith like this man. To know that you've found better treasure. Christians, if you, if you have believed in Jesus, then I call you to respond today as well by being renewed in your call. Ask Jesus, ask the Spirit of God in you to renew you in your calling, to be one who goes and tells how much God has done for you, longing for the day when he comes back. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we were like this man. Lost. Unable to save ourselves. So distant from you. Filled with evil and unable to follow the good. We may not have been possessed by demons, but we were people who were sinful and unable to turn to you. But Jesus, you come down to save us. You came down and you died on the cross for us. You carried our sin and our shame. So Lord, I pray that you would lead us to respond to that in faith today. Life-changing, joy-bringing, eternity-beginning faith. I ask that those viewing this would believe that you would strip away those treasures of our hearts that have opposed you. That you would take away the resistance that has begged you to leave and that you would lead us to treasure you. And in treasuring you, I ask that you would send us as people who faithfully tell of how good God has been to us. We pray it in Jesus' name.